0: Welcome to a lively new podcast from the New England Quarterly. I am Linda Rhodes, NEQ's editor, and it is my privilege to introduce you to our participants. Paula D. Hunt, a PhD candidate at the University of Missouri, is the author of Sybil Ludington, The Female Paul Revere, The Making of a Revolutionary War Heroine, which appears in NEQ's June 2015 issue. Discussing with Paula, both Ludington in particular, and the uses of history in the public sphere more broadly, is Marla Miller, recently appointed to NEQ's editorial board. Marla, a professor in the history department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, is director of its public history program. She is the author of a number of books, most pertinent here being Betsy Ross and the Making of America. I have no doubt that the pursuit and practice of history We'll take on new dimensions for you as you listen in on this compelling conversation.
1: I'm Marla Miller, a member of the editorial board at the New England Quarterly, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Paula Hunt, author of A Fascinating New Study of Sybil Ludington, the New York teenager celebrated today as a hero of the American Revolution. Paula, to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Sybil Ludington of legend. For listeners who don't know, what's the story for which she's remembered today? Well, Sybil Luddington
2: had just turned 16 years old in April 1777, and she lived with her family in kind of upstate New York, that what is now in Dutchess and Putnam County. Her father was a colonel of the local militia, and one night, an exhausted messenger on horseback rides up to Colonel Ludington's home, gets off, collapses, and says, the British are marching on Danbury, you must muster your men, and Colonel Luddington turns to his 16-year-old daughter Sybil and he says, "Sybil, go muster my men." So she gets on her horse Star, she goes and she gathers all the colonel's men. They march off to Danbury, which is about 20 miles away, and the British were headed there because there was a supply and a munitions depot. Uh, unfortunately, the Americans didn't get there in time, and Danbury burned to the ground. But this legend of Sybil Luddington as having you know, taken on this task as a young girl in the dark of night was so significant that actually George Washington even personally thanked her for her ride and her endeavor.
1: So how did those events come down to us in history? Did people talk about them at the time, or is this a story that gained traction after the revolution had ended? Her story of her ride first
2: appears in A History of New York and the Revolution by Martha J. Lamb, which was published in the 1880s. And it's actually a very small part of a story about her father, who was a significant figure. Then it kind of dies down, and it resurfaces again in 1907, when a second book about Colonel Luddington himself was published. And it was published by his grandchildren, and it basically tells the story of this heroic, militia man. And the stories that had appeared earlier in the Lamb book also start to reappear in the Willis Fletcher Johnson book published in 1907. And the 1907 seemed to be the springboard for more stories appearing about her, particularly in that area of New York and Dutchess and Putnam counties. And
1: from there, it spread. This seems like the kind of story that would appeal to the Daughters of the American Revolution. Did they get involved at any point? Daughters of the American Revolution got
2: involved in this particular story around the late 1920s. There was a sesquicentennial celebration in New York State, and one of the things that was decided to do was that... They wanted to really celebrate and pump up New York State's role in the Revolution. Not that it didn't have one, but when we think of New York and the Revolution, we think of the Battle of Brooklyn and some unfortunate events that happened. They're looking for events that are celebratory and heroic. And a state committee let constituencies and local areas decide what they wanted to celebrate. And the DAR got involved in this very early. And the local chapter, the Enoch Crosby chapter, which had only been established in 1926, decided that it wanted to install road markers. And this was in the 1920s, 1930s. This is a very popular, very rather inexpensive way to celebrate local events, whether it was Washington slept here or somebody rode by or it was the first white settler. We see, you know, across the country these things are happening. So what the DAR decided to do was they decided that they were going to celebrate the places where Colonel Ludington mustered his men and they practiced marching as well as they were going to celebrate the route that Sybil Ludington took around the countryside. And this is a very important um, step in Sybil Ludington's story because these road markers have really become evidence of her story. And what Seems to have happened was that these organizers they looked at the roster of Colonel Ludington's men, and they looked at a contemporary map from the colonial days, and it seems that they matched the names to the map, and that is how this particular route was set up. And it happens to be about 40 miles long. Ever since then, in the 1930s, Civil Ludington has ridden 40 miles.
1: One of the things that I think is so interesting about your work is just that kind of genealogical approach to the little factual elements that entered her story over time. It's sort of this process of accretion where little details get introduced by different authors and in time accumulate to this story. And so your telling of this story about the road markers is fascinating along those regards. And it also strikes me that that's the very beginning of car culture. Very much so. Very much so,
2: and that wasn't too long after this, um, it was a WPA project where there was a lot of you know, historical elements involved and people researching um, localities, and it was about 1937 that this book on historic Duchess County came out, and it talked about these road markers. but. It never mentioned Colonel Luddington. It only mentioned his the daughter of a Colonel, Sybil Luddington. And so very shortly after the installation of these markers, we kind of see Colonel Luddington starting to recede into the background and Sybil starting to move ahead and really capture people's imagination.
1: It's interesting how his story is sort of set aside as hers becomes more interesting to audiences. And I wonder, one of the things that I learned from your research is how she became of interest during the Cold War. And we we don't usually think about how people during that era looked back at the Revolution, but why do you think they were so interested in her? Well, I I I think that's true because when we think of harkening back to the revolution,
2: we think of kind of the celebration of George Washington, we think of kind of the, the, the elevation of the common man in the 30s, we see all, you know, the um, Bond posters and advertising in the World War II, but actually Sybil Levington really starts to make her uphill climb in the 50s, and I think it had to do with this, kind of belief in a return to normalcy in the 1950s, and we kind of forget that this is a generation that had double whammies of the Depression and World War II. And, you know, it's partly demographic, and there was also this fear of communism. We just dropped a couple bombs, and there was something, I think, very reassuring in this teenager who, when her father turned to her, and said, "Sybil, go rest her my men. You know, she didn't do a James Dean and say, you're tearing me apart. She said, yes, I'll get on my horse and I'll get going. We see in the local area, we see her connected to nature. She rode by this tree and this oak tree, which has these very historical meanings in our history. So I think when you contrast her as a counterpoint to comic books, juvenile delinquents, Elvis Presley, here was truly a young woman we could look up to and we could show our teenagers this is the kind of person that
1: we want to be. It sounds like her story was just constantly on the rise. What happens to it then in the 70s and 80s? What happens between the 50s and now? Well, I think one of the important things that actually happened in the 50s was when
2: um, a book appeared about her in 1952. It was a children's book. Um, it was extremely popular, called Sybil Ludington's Ride. And I mention it because a number of these kind of accretions you had mentioned appear first in this book, that she rode a horse by the name of Star in particular. I could find no references to the horse's name before this one book appeared. And it also ran as a serial in children's magazines. So we have from 52, and then about 10 years later, we have the installation of this enormous bronze statue of Sybil on her horse by the shores of Lake Glenida in Carmel, New York. And this was heavily promoted, and this statue of her has really become an emblem of Sybil Ludington. We still see it today. We see it on... it was put on garbage cans around the county. Um, It was put on a golf ball. It is seen on Chamber of Commerce websites. So it was a very important image that was established and supported by the DAR. A DAR member um, crafted the statue. So that was kind of another high point. And then we see her kind of rise up in the early 1970s, kind of building up to the Bicentennial. And again, the DAR was really behind efforts to get Sybil Ludington on a postage stamp. So they lobbied very hard for their local representative, Hamilton Fish, and in 1975, Sybil did indeed get on to what was called Contributors to the Cause set of stamps. So there was Sybil, there was an African American, there was a Jewish gentleman, and there was a Hispanic. And so she, was now, she is now on a set of stamps, again, from the D.A.R. And the D.A.R. has continued, particularly the Enoch Crosby chapter, has continued to really be a really big booster of Sybil Ludington, not so much the national D.A.R.
1: Is there a likeness of her that survives, or to create those artworks, are they imagining what she must have looked like? Were there models, do you happen
2: to know? Um, I don't know of any image of her. I mean, one of the really fascinating elements of her story is how very little exists. Um, we know if she's buried, there's a headstone. There are some um, contemporary documents of her when she lived up in Catskill, New York. We also have the, in about 1838, she applied for a widow's pension because her husband had been in the Connecticut Army and it had been turned down. So really, we are looking at A handful of primary source documents so we don't know what she looked like interestingly enough there is a contemporary silhouette
1: of her father
2: hmm that does exist
1: so much of this story of course reminds me of Betsy Ross who's a figure near and dear to my heart and I would be interested in hearing you reflect some on those two stories about stories Betsy Ross as you know had her sort of heroic moment as a figure in American popular culture at the turn of the 20th century. And I feel like her trajectory has kind of been downhill ever since the, say, 1920s or 30s, maybe. But it seems like Sybil Ludington is on a very different path in terms of her place in American culture. I, w- I wonder if you could juxtapose those two. Well, I think they're
2: very, very similar in that they are... Not just that they're women, but that their stories came out of narratives from families, which is how we how I think this Sybil Luddington came. And that they were they were women, but they had lives outside of who they were as historic figures, which I think is interesting because if you look at Sybil Luddington, who is a bit of an entrepreneur, she has a tavern, she takes out loans. You had Betsy Ross, who was a businesswoman who had her, you know, in this artisan tradition. I can't explain why Sybil has such resonance, and it's one of the most surprising things about her is how often she continues to pop up in all these different manifestations. I think that there's something about ordinary people who step up and support a cause greater than themselves, that they aren't heroes, is really... Attractive to Americans mm. that um, when they are called upon, whether it's to pick up a needle or get on a horse, this is what we do as Americans, and it's a very. I think, you know, I think that history is just about. It's as much as about what happened as what it means, and I think that that speaks to both Betsy Ross and Sybil Luddington that they mean a great deal to people, and to Americans.
1: I can just tell that you have a lot of affection for this story and for Sybil, which which is just wonderful. And so I'm curious, what brought you to the subject of Sybil Luddington? Well, I do really love
2: Sybil very, very much. And I actually first ran across her when I was in grade school. And I won a DAR essay contest writing about Sybil Luddington, And literally, not, had not thought of her for 25 years when I was visiting a friend who lives up in Mayapack, New York. And she was driving me around. She says, oh, I have to show you the statue of this girl on a horse who's foaming at the mouth. And I said, well, I've got to see this. And there was Sybil Luddington on her horse. And um, she was foaming at the mouth because apparently there had been some kind of error in the casting process. Moisture got in. And so it looked like she was spitting up toothpaste. This probably was in the 80s or the 90s. And I just fell in love with her again right then and there. And I thought, I want to look into this. I want to see more about who this Sybil Luddington is. And I want to do her story much better than a second grader could. And when I started looking at her story, and I was living in New York, and I had access to the New York Historical Society and some of the other wonderful resources there, I ran up against the same problem that others had, which was that you couldn't get basically past the turn of the 20th century. I mean, there was just nothing there. I put the story away again, and I carried that box around me on my travels. And when I was in graduate school, I pulled it out again. And one of the great things I learned in graduate school from my advisor, Dr. Ernest Perry, was that I was simply asking the wrong questions. Instead of asking, did she ride or didn't she ride, why not ask, why do people think she rode? And suddenly, it's like, oh, my goodness. There's this entirely new avenue open for me to take a look at. So it's been a wonderful ride, pardon the pun, to kind of follow this story of hers and how it, it kind of changes and how different, completely different kind of audiences also really seemed to enjoy her as much as I do. So what were some of the big surprises for you as you went about your research? There were some real shockers in how people interpreted her story. One person wrote that she was really an African-American. That was surprising. I think that the way that she dressed, sometimes she was dressed in her mother's heavy red cloak. Another time she was dressed as a man. Sometimes she was dressed in her father's clothes. So just kind of this, This churning of where did this come from? How does this happen? And I think the other surprising thing was how much vitriol was directed at her by some people who were really concerned about what they saw was a kind of a liberal turn in American history taught to students, and that she was part of this filler feminism. That, well, You know, she's not as important as Paul Revere. She shouldn't be in there with all these founding fathers because she wasn't that important. And I thought that that was fascinating because here we have people, scholars, who are criticizing her inclusion based on what they say is her importance not whether she actually wrote or not, because there is very little evidence that she ever did. So I thought that that was maybe the most surprising thing that I found. I think that
1: level of hostility is so telling. You know, we have a narrative in contemporary society that people don't care about history anymore, but when you encounter that kind of vitriol, you find out that they really do. I think that people are incredibly
2: interested in history. And they're interested in stories that resonate with them. And Sybil Ludington happens to be a story, I think, that resonates with many different kinds of people. It has, again, it's a story that has meaning. And it's, you know, we want to be attached to this positive cultural legacy. It's about freedom and citizenship and stepping up to the plate. We want to be associated with that. And I think that she represents that to many
1: people. So, you're actually a student in a journalism program rather than a history department. How do you think that that helps you see the story differently? Does it help you notice the role of journalism in American myth-making? I think that my studies in
2: journalism and having a background as being a reporter inform the way I look at stories and the way that stories change over time. Really the way that journalism contributes to history. I mean, newspapers, for example, historians use newspapers as sources all the time. I look at a newspaper and say, okay, it's a source, but what else do I know about how it was produced and how it produced and who produced it? How does that inform the stories that they tell and how they tell stories? So part of the fun of this project for me is with Sybil Ludington is looking at her being covered in the press and that she wasn't covered until the 20th century. Um, There were a number of, in the mid-19th century, it wasn't like people were not writing about women in the Revolution. Elizabeth Ellett had a very famous set of books about heroines of the Revolution. Godey's Ladies Book, the very popular magazine, wrote about founding mothers all the time. It's where Sybil Luddington is not found. It's not till we get to the 20th century that we start seeing her really resonate we start seeing her in the 1920s. It's after 1920 and women have gotten the vote. And I'm not saying that she is necessarily a symbol of women's independence and freedom. What I'm saying is that I think that there are women who are looking for women in the historic past who have a meaning for them and say, "Look, you know, we we did our jobs too," whether that was Rosie the Riveter or looking off into, I think it was the year of the woman in the early 1970s. So I think it was, for Sybil Ludington, had to reach a time and a place where it resonated. Maybe it wouldn't have resonated in the 19th century. I mean, after all, when Martha J. Lamb and Willis Fletcher Johnson wrote about her, they were really writing about her father. I don't think we can forget that. This was not a story about Sybil. This was a story about her father.
1: It seems like in a way they're seeds cast out on the ground, and as later generations reach back into the archival record or in the public record, they're looking for answers to questions of their time, and, and she was there, you know, available through these seeds planted by Lamb and by the other family stories. I think
2: so, and, and that she has a counterpoint in Paul Revere, I think, is also really important.
1: Yeah, talk a little bit about that. If there had been no Paul Revere, do you think that we would have Sybil Ludington? I'm not sure, because so often her
2: story is tied to his. As, you know, they rode within one year of each other. Um, okay, they both got on horses. They were both messengers, both during the Revolution. So there are quite a few parallels. But she was a young girl, and she didn't get caught. He was a, he was a grown man, and he got caught. He rode only 12 miles, but Sybil... 40 miles. So you have a game of one-upmanship
1: between Sewell and
2: Paul Revere uh-huh.
1: in that, you know, well, we've got one too. Well, so, and of course he gets the heroic poem, which helps. Did she yes, get poetry? He, get, he got the poem. I mean, it really was I don't believe that the ride was
2: recognized in his lifetime. A number of people have written about that. It didn't appear in his obituary when he died. No one said, oh, the great Paul Revere who did this ride and, you know, he got caught, but was great anyway. It wasn't until the Longfellow poem. And, you know, Sybil has a she actually has a number of different poems that are written about her. Most of them are a mirror of the Longfellow Paul Revere poem. Uh Uh-huh. Hard to improve on Longfellow. It it really is. Listen my children. (laughs) Listen my children and you shall hear of a lovely feminine Paul Revere who rode an equally famous ride through a different part of the countryside, where Sybil Lutington name recalls a ride as daring as that of Paul's.
1: That's really wonderful. So,
2: yes, she um, has her poem. She also has an opera, and I'm not sure Paul Revere has an opera. Oh, yes. Well,
1: that is something to aspire to. Or a golf ball.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> well, so this, this makes me wonder if you can speculate a little bit about what's required to start a myth or a story that embeds itself so deeply in a culture over time. What are the components of that? Well, I think one of the strongest elements
2: for Sybil Ludington is she's tied to this historical moment in our country, this genesis. This is when it all began. It was tied to a time that is relatively, in our public imagination, not too controversial. It's not the Civil War. It's not Vietnam. There were definite good guys. There were definite bad guys. So I think being associated with this time in our country that we see as so foundational important is also critical. I think that she appeared at a time when her story resonated with people. And I talk about this in the article that, you know, we we have an era in which we look back to the revolution. We're always looking for new stories and the story appears of this girl and she has a strong, very local connection with this particular part of New York State, that people were very much tied to the story of this girl. We have Sybil Ludington, So you have a very foundational moment in our country's history. We have a very strong tie to a particular place that was, in a sense, seeking something that it could associate it with this great national story. And I just think it had there was enough to know what she might have done and not enough to know to discount any critics. So I think that those are some, some elements that really contribute to a national myth, at Absence. least in Sybil's case.
1: Absence seems as important as presence in some ways. The, the archival record that's missing is as important as what's present. I think
2: so, because she can really almost be anything you want her to be, because we do know so little about her. You know, we don't know if she rode side saddle or not. We don't know if she did. You know, maybe she just ran across the street and knocked on a neighbor's door. We simply don't know. But instead, we have the kernel of a story that we can kind of work with and mold to contemporary needs and interests.
1: This makes me think again of the roadside markers and their generative role in, in crafting the story itself. And so I wonder if, in the same way you've urged us to, you know, bring a critical eye to newspaper reporting, what would you have us think about the roadside markers we encounter all over the landscape?
2: Yes, well, there's quite a bit of literature on roadside markers and how many, if not most of them, are, are not simply historically correct. But I think what they say is they tell us what was important to people at the time that they were erected. Of course, they have great legitimacy and heft because if you're driving along to Dutchess Putnam Counties and you see this cast iron buff and Blue marker that says it's installed by the New York State Education Department, that you think, wow, this has got to be true. The Education Department put this up here. So I think that You need to take them with a grain of salt. I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person who, every time I see a historical marker, I always pull off the road to read it. Absolutely. I think it it tells us what people thought or think is important about their past, whether that was the first white child born in the area, whether it was the site of the first sawmill, whether it was Sybil Ludington riding by on the night to muster her father's men. I don't think, if they're not historical in the sense that they are accurate, they're historical in the sense
1: in that they tell us what people think is important. The material culture of these legends can be a lot of fun, and, and you've mentioned a couple of the places she appears that you might not expect, like the golf ball, and I know she appears in Jon Stewart's America, the book, A Citizen's Guide to Democracy in Action. Yeah. I'm curious, what are some of the other places that her story has been adapted for commercial purposes or other means? Well, the National
2: Rifle Association has a Sybil Ludington Women's Freedom Award that it gives out. Uh, started about 1995, which Sarah Palin has won. And it's for to honor her accomplishment and the accomplishments of modern heroines who believe in the Second Amendment. That is one way in which I think her symbolism has been used. I mean, there's also a National Organization of Women in Connecticut had a Sybil Ludington Freedom Award that, you know, linked her to this person that was for a young woman. She could look up to Sybil Ludington. There was, uh, I don't know, I don't know where to start. I mean, there's... Um, you can go on YouTube and look up Drunk History, and there is a, a Drunk History episode of Sybil
1: Luddington. <laughs> yes, we'll have to include that link in, yeah. uh, in the podcast materials. Well, we've, um, we really appreciate you giving us so much of your time today, and, and before we close, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now.
2: I am finishing up my dissertation and it is on the publishing enterprise of the American Anti-Slavery Society from 1833 to 1840. And I'm really looking at this group as a publishing concern and what they went through, their practices and their procedures in really running a publishing enterprise that put out millions of pieces of literature in a seven-year period. And so again, this is kind of me looking at it as a journalist and saying, wait a minute, these people are writing about editing, they're writing about proofing, they're running to the printers. I think they're publishers. Interesting. So a thicker archival
1: record this time. Yes, it is. But not thick enough. (laughs) Never. It's never thick enough, I know. Well, Paula, thanks so much. It's a fascinating project and I've really enjoyed talking with you about it. Oh, thank you so much, Marla. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which was brought to you by the New England Quarterly. To read more about Sybil Lennington or to meet more of New England's fascinating characters, subscribe to the New England Quarterly for 20% off. Visit mitpressjournals.org NEQ and enter the discount code TNEQEP25. That's tneqep P two five
0: at checkout.